Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Government is the problem. This will not stand. This will not stand, this aggression against uh, Kuwait. Indeed, I did have a relationship with Mr. Lewinsky that was not appropriate. America is a strong force for peace. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. And my vice president has shot someone. You smell what Barack is cooking. You didn't build that. Give you all a big kiss, the women and the men. I'll, kiss, I'll even kiss the men. I'll kiss those big, powerful men. Sit down, you'll hear what I have to say. Welcome to the program, my huddled masses. This is Jordan Driscoll, your industry malcontent and ATM of reckless opinion. Grab yourself a cup of coffee and let's get into it. Or, in my case, it's a uh, nice uh, cup of black tea. You're going with the uh, Earl Grey Captain Picard style this evening. Mmm. Oh, yeah, delicious. All right. Now we got the inaugural sip out of the way. Let's get into it. Now, we got a bit of housekeeping to do to The first thing is you're going to notice there's new show artwork and there is also a new show title. That's right. Congratulations to my loyal 15. We did what they said could not be done. We got the show renamed. Um, and, uh, you know, we hit that magic 15 number and all of a sudden the business daddy was willing to let us rename the show. And we've done it now. We've won. We've succeeded. We were an unstoppable army. And, um, yes, we finally made it happen. So uh, there it is. Welcome to Context is for Kings. Oil and gas geopolitics is dead. Long live Context is for Kings and also for Queens for my female listeners, of which there are at least a handful of you, evidently. Um, but anyway, yeah, I thought that was a much more snazzy, fun, punchy name that was more appropriate to kind of what it is that I care about with this show, which is obviously still a geopolitical in nature and, and looking at those big global crises. But I've always been one who cares much, much more about the actual the context around situations. Um that way you guys can kind of make informed opinions and decisions and that kind of thing. So there we are. We've done it. We succeeded. We won. I mean, I can practically retire now, except except we still have a show to put on, so let's get to it. The next thing that I have to address is, um, so I was down this past weekend in Houston at the OGGN uh, Super Secret Headquarters for Paige Wilson's birthday. Um... And it was a real fun time. Had a great time. I might have been, you know, I basically spent the weekend living like I was on shore leave, if I'm being entirely honest. I was I was in full form. I was, I was having a blast. Uh, there may or may not be pictures of me dressed in a fur coat with a big floppy hat dancing to Big Pimpin'. No one can really say. Um, and certainly that, uh, that photographic evidence will not be released to a wider audience, probably. Um, I don't know, maybe, maybe for a... a an April Fool's special or something. But anyway, it was a fun time. Uh, while I was down there, I did get to hang out with uh, some of the other hosts, Delfina, of course, the business daddy himself, Paige, a few others. Um, the Rock Doc Joe did not make it because, um, you know, he was, uh, you know, just too cool to uh, make it down to the party. So he, uh, he sat that one out. So I have to give him a lot of shade on that one. But anyway, while I was down there, uh, I got to hang out with Delfina, who I absolutely love. Delfina, who's been a guest on this show um, a couple of times now, actually. One of the few people I've I've had on, and I've been on her show a few times now. Uh, 
man, I love Delfina. Delfina, evidently, which I didn't really actually uh, know this, or maybe if I had heard it, I just didn't believe it because it seemed so far-fetched because she's like an actual pro and I'm just some guy that drifted into the network and started making trouble. But Delfina evidently listens to my show evidently religiously. Um, she is one of the loyal 15, as she will she will tell you. Um, and I didn't know that. I just I kind of assumed, you know, I mean, it's like my little close cadre. Of people. I mean, the numbers say one thing, but I don't think, you know, when I run into somebody that listens to it, it always kind of surprises me. And I'm always honored and flattered. Um, but for Delfina, like she's, you know, she's she's a she's an important person. She's not listening to my. It would be like finding out that um, Joe Rogan listens to my show. I mean, why would he do that? There's better things for him to do at this time. But anyway, whatever. The point is, point is, what we're trying to get to here is we're down at the party, and Delfina and I are catching up and hanging out and throwing back some drinks and just chit chatting. And she was like, "By the way, your Venezuela episode, you fucked up." And I was like. I didn't even know you were aware that that happened, but okay, cool. I'm glad you listened. Tell me how I fucked up. And she said, um, you mispronounced the region of Guyana uh, that, that that this whole thing was based around, which is um, because my Spanish sucks, as I think I've said multiple times. I can barely speak English, let alone any other language. It's insulting that they even let me get on a podcast where I have to communicate in my mother tongue, uh, let alone speak, um, you know, occasionally use terminology from other languages. But anyway, so yes, needless to say, I fucked it up. Um, I think I pronounced it as Skibo, which is not correct. And uh, Delfina told me aggressively what it actually was called. Um, and I don't remember because it's uh, it sounded what she said it was supposed to sound like and what it sounds like that I've been saying this whole time they sound like the exact same word I think she said something like Essequibo maybe that could be wrong too I don't actually know the point is I fucking mispronounced it on the Venezuela episode which I know surprises none of you but here we are so if you want to know how to um, properly pronounce the region that Venezuela is, uh, you know, was threatening, then what I would advise you to do is to either Google it or my more preferred solution, and I actually am surprised I didn't think of this sooner, and I, I actually have already started recording as I've thought of this, and this is actually kind of... <laughs> it's going to fucking kill me for this. Um, if you want to know how to properly... Uh, pronounce this um, this region, then what I would advise you to do is to write into Delfina at her show and you can reach her at Delfina that's D-E ah, it's so far away from the microphone, hang on here D-E-L-F I-N-A dot govia g-o V-I-A at O-G-G-N dot com. And you know what? Honestly, I'll probably just put it in the show notes, too, because I'm a dick like that. Um, but yeah, if you want to know how to properly pronounce both her last name and the region of Venez uh, that Venezuela is impacting, uh, email Delfina and let her know that I sent you. And, and recklessly, yeah, by all means, throw me throw me out there for that one. It's totally fine. She's going to hear this, evidently, so she's going to know that it's coming. And, um, yeah, yeah, I feel pretty, um, 
I feel pretty much like that's the solution. Delfina, you're right. You got me. I fucked up how that's pronounced, and I probably still am. But I'm going to give you the opportunity to correct it for me because that's the kind of gentleman I am. All right, now that we've gotten past that, man, such a brilliant idea. I'm a genius. Okay, so what's next on the list? Speaking of the Venezuela Essequibo situation, if that's even how it's said, um, it should be noted that last month, just as a follow-up to that, uh, both countries did sit down and agree to resolve that land dispute via diplomatic means and not with violence. So it seems like that situation is de-escalated rather nicely. Now, uh, I think I said in the Venezuela episode, and I don't recall because uh, it was several weeks ago now, but I believe I even said something about it uh, that I didn't think it was going to lead to an actual invasion for a whole lot of reasons. You know, Venezuelan sanctions with the U.S. being, you know, lifted and they didn't want to deal tangling with the guerrilla that was the Brazilian military right along their border. And Brazil was clearly not interested in seeing that invasion happen. And, and I think it was more of a political power play for uh, Maduro and, and all the things, all the things. I didn't think it was going to kick off into a full-on war. But it is reassuring to know that it looks like that has settled down quite a bit. So happy to see that's de-escalated. Hopefully that all gets resolved. Um so, yeah, there we go. Speaking of Paige's party, I did um, run into a listener of the show there, Jennifer. And um, I'll throw out her last name because I don't know if I should do that or not. I don't know. I have her permission to do this. So we're just going to say Jennifer. And um, uh, she had she listens to the show, evidently. I know. I know. Another female listener. It's uh, I've got a corner on the demographic. Um, but anyway, so she had very kind things to say about the show. Spent a lot of the evening chit-chatting. And... Um, uh, it was an absolute delight. I was shocked and uh, possibly even appalled to find uh, another person there that listens to my show. So thank you for that and uh, for all the very nice things you said about it. So, um, yeah, thank you, Jennifer. Um, as always, if you're liking this show, please feel free to uh, give a rating and a review on iTunes uh, or the podcast app or wherever it is you're listening to it. Uh, ratings, reviews always help, so uh, we always love to have those, and I always read the ratings. Um, uh, well, I, I give them a shout-out. I don't typically read them because I get embarrassed by uh, reading the reviews, but, but I do appreciate them very much, and, of course, the ratings help. Um, if you're not liking the show, and then I would encourage you to just skip the rating and review process and go listen to something that you actually do like um, because life's too short to listen to a podcast you don't like. So there we go. Um, next item on the list, I will be at NAPE at the beginning of February doing a live show at the OGGN booth. So if you happen to be at NAPE and you'll want to swing by, say hello, please do so. If you want to send in any questions for that show, please send them in. I've got a stack of stuff. Uh, from uh, a handful of my listeners that write to me regularly and a few outliers, but I always like to have a, a deeper bench to pull from. So if you've got anything you want to send in, please uh, feel free to email me. I'll put my email in the show notes. Um, uh, or you can hit me up on LinkedIn, as a number of folks do. Um, and, yeah, just shoot me over your questions. I'll be happy to, to take a stab at them. And, uh, yeah, there we go. So come see me in Ape if you're there. I'll be around. And, uh, yeah, that'll be exciting times. So now that we've gotten all the housekeeping out of the way, and also shout out to my boy uh, Lodvig, um, my my pen pal uh, in, in Europe. Uh, Lodvig, I know you're going to listen to this. 
I'm sorry I'm terrible at replying to emails, but I do read each and every one of them, and I love getting them from you. And I've actually got a few years set aside to uh, to hit in the quest the Q and A episode. So I'm 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 with you, man. I, I love it. I love it. He's my most enthusiastic writer. He's my pen pal. I'm just a shitty pen pal to have. Um, but he's great though. He writes to me all the time. It's fantastic. Um, okay, so. Let's move into the topic of tonight's show. Uh, So like we did about a year ago for 2023, we're going to do what I think are the biggest geopolitical crises that we can brace for in 2024, why I think they're important, and how I think they might play out if I have a guess. Now, obviously, I could be wrong. Maybe at the end of the year, we'll do a follow-up episode and see just how uh, close or off I was, and uh, that might be interesting. Now, one thing I will say is last year, I went and found an article about um, 10 geopolitical crises, uh, and I just kind of covered that and gave my thoughts. This year, I've actually, I'm just, I've, this is my own list. Now, I say that some of these are without a doubt. Well, I, I would argue probably every one of these is on someone's top 10 list of geopolitical crises. In fact, there aren't even 10 here. There's... Um, there's nine budget cuts. Couldn't quite make it to ten. But these are the nine that I think are particularly pressing. Uh, but I'm certain that almost anyone else, I haven't gone and looked, but I would imagine these are on a great many other people's lists. So that's nothing crazy there. Um, maybe not this exact nine, but most of them I would bet would be on most people's lists if you had to say, here's a geopolitical, you know, what do you think the, the ones are to worry about? So, um, and these are in no particular order of importance. This is just as I was thinking about them. Uh, first one is obviously the Russia-Ukraine war, which will, in a couple of months, be entering its third year. Now, I know, I know, I know. I've already done several episodes on the Russia-Ukraine war. I've always had a lot to say about it, and I always will. I won't go into it right now. If you want to know my thoughts on it, feel free to look in the back catalog and grab one of those episodes. What I will say is, the fucker is still ongoing and looks to continue on uh, be uh, to continue on going and it's probably going to enter a very interesting time uh, in a nutshell the Ukrainian counteroffensive did not perform as advertised uh, it was not super effective um, to further compound issues winter is now setting in which winter in that part of the world is a little bit more brutal than the winter in the part of the world I'm in Uh, so they've got that going against them and also the US budget and Congress situation is with the Republicans uh, kind of turning against the whole support the Ukraine thing now for those of you and I'm not going to go into all the details here hit me up offline or look at my back episodes if you want to know but for a lot of reasons especially important to oil and gas you kind of want Russia to lose this one and I'm sort of surprised the Republicans aren't on board with that Um, but if you look at the the energy politics that are tied into the invasion in Ukraine um, it kind of behooves the western industry if Russia doesn't win this one so uh, you know I don't know it's um you know just to look into it make your decisions but yeah I'm I'm on the side of I would like to see them not conquer Ukraine and let's be very clear that is kind of the stakes here just this past week uh the russian i think he's prime minister medvedev who's former president um made a comment that the war would not end until all of ukraine was under russian control and i think the exact point i don't have it here but it was very close to this was ukrainians can either accept russian control unilaterally or death 
And that's a pretty ballin' statement. Like, that pretty much sets the tone of exactly where their head's at in this thing. So, uh, yeah, if you're wondering what the overall stakes that Russia seems to think are at play here, that's them. Uh, and we're going into year three, and it does not appear to be close to a win. Ukraine's not giving up, although things are not looking good for them right now. Russia is obviously just throwing bodies and and um, resources into this at a alarming rate. And I may do a follow-up just on the cost of the war on both sides um, at some point with some independent sources that have kind of done accurate uh, casualty and material counts. I think that'd be interesting. Um but at any rate, yeah, I think that's obviously going to be a huge factor over the next uh, year, over this year, as we move forward. So, yep, that's not uh, we're not out of the woods yet on that one, I'm afraid. Okay, so next up on the list is probably going to be the uh, 2024 U.S. presidential election. I know, I know. So basically, as it stands right now, pretty much everyone has dropped out of the Republican side for the most part, except for Trump, obviously, who is winning by the simple fact that he wakes up in the morning and draws a breath, at least among the primary voters, Um, even though I don't believe he's attended any of the debates or anything like that. He's just, uh, you know, he's like an old West gunslinger. He's just living on reputation. Um, At any rate, so you've got him ostensibly in the lead. I think Nikki Haley is still um, uh, intent on fighting it out some, so we'll see how that goes. I think there's only been one primary so far, so uh, at least as of this recording, so we'll see what happens. But Vibeck and DeSantis and the rest of them have all dropped out at this point. And most of them, I think, were just waiting for some sort of a Trump implosion, and uh, Trump has just not imploded as of yet. And I don't know that he will. Um, on the other side of the house, you've got Joe, the sarcophagus of Joe Biden running. Um, and it's shaping very much uh, like it's going to be a rematch between the sarcophagus of Joe Biden and the perpetual indictment machine of Donald Trump. Um, the reason this is a crisis to watch in 2024 is because obviously our last election was a chaotic mess. And uh, Anytime there's that level of instability in the United States, uh, that's going to be an issue for the rest of the world. It's going to have ramifications, and I think that we have to be very aware of that. Um, As far as, uh, you know, the problem is, who do I think is going to win? The short answer is I don't know. I mean, obviously, there's still a chance it might not be Trump, although I think at this point, more than likely, unless Trump either makes some sort of a grandiose faux pas uh, or he just legitimately gets arrested or dies, um, I think it's very probable he'll be the uh, Republican nominee. And as far as who's going to win the actual election, honestly, I have no clue. It's, to my mind, as much of a twin cost as it's ever been. Uh, on the one hand, uh, Donald Trump has, in many ways, seemingly less supporters than he had the first time around. I mean, they everyone thought the midterms were going to be this red wave, and almost uniformly, candidates that had a Trump endorsement did not do that well. So there's clearly a Trump fatigue among a large chunk of the conservative base. On the other hand, uh, Joe Biden's tenure wall 
much more sedate has perhaps been a little too sedate. Um, one, Joe Biden's 81, 82, somewhere in that ballpark. I mean, he's, he's getting on up there in years. And I don't want to get into the whole ages thing because I really don't think you can say – saying a person is too old to do something doesn't really – age is such a case-by-case basis. I know personally guys that are 65 years old and can still do 15 pull-ups, no problem at all. They can do 45 push-ups. They're super fit, super – they look like they're 30. They're 65, and they're super active, super engaged, super with it, all that. I know people that are 65 who need a cane to get around. Um, age is just one of those things that is so individual and so unique. Um, and unfortunately, Joe Biden, love him or hate him, the man has not aged well. Uh, I mean, he just hasn't. I mean, whether you like the guy or not, he's uh, he's tripping over air that we have lying around. He kind of goes off on little tangents. I mean, it just it's not great. To top it all off. Joe Biden had one advantage going for him in the last election, and that is he was in a known quantity. He had not previously been president, is what I mean by that, and Trump had. And love him or hate him, you knew how you felt about Trump, and you knew how you felt things had gone. Um, And with Biden, he had never been president, so you didn't know what that was going to look like. But well, now we've got four years of Biden. We know what that looks like. And yes, there was a lot of inflation. And while that is settling down now, uh, economically, it's not been amazing. And there have been lots of, I mean, there's tons of global conflict happening right now. And there's just lots of, of worry about his age and his ability to kind of be on top of things and all of that. And that's going to impact him in a pretty big way in this election. On the other hand, um, The funny thing is, and I've said this before, I think if the Republicans ran pretty much anybody else, like if they just – if Donald Trump just got sucked into a time-space vortex and vanished, um, just didn't exist. He wasn't like – I'm not talking anything malicious. He's not assassinated or anything. I mean if he just just blinked out of time uh, and didn't exist in this election – I think the Republicans pretty much win in a landslide with almost anybody that they run. Um, And the flip side is, if Trump's the nominee and the Democrats ran almost anybody other than Joe Biden, I think they win in a blue landslide. Uh, These are two of the least, like just in terms of broad public appeal, they have the lowest approval rating of candidates. I mean, they both just have so much drama, so much baggage, so much bullshit that goes along with them that everyone is just kind of not excited about it, and I'm certainly not. Um, and so, yeah, I, it's a real coin toss. I just don't know. Uh, Biden, for sure, has the age thing going against him. He also has what I call the the Kamala Harris factor going against him. Biden himself is about as middle-of-the-road centrist of a Democrat as you can get, but he does kind of surround himself with these sort of further-out left, uh, left-wingers left who are a little bit much, some of them, and I think that kind of impacts him. Uh, but on the flip side, Trump tends to surround himself with a lot of real crazy ultra-right-wing characters. And so, I mean, there's just so many tit-for-tat uh, uh, things here. Um 
yeah, I just I don't know which way this one's going to go. But one thing I will say is it's probably going to be a very contentious, very unpleasant election cycle. And hopefully it does not end in the sort of uh, pandemonium that we had in the last one. Because if it does, that is going to have global, global implications. And I'm sure I'll be talking more about this topic as the year goes on and we see this uh, this whole uh, a piece of theater unfold, but for now, yeah, that's that's one of the things we got to look forward to in this year that I think is going to be a big big issue. Next up is the comparatively new 2024 uh, or 23, I suppose technically Israel Hamas war, also Israel versus uh, Hezbollah, also Israel versus pretty much fucking everybody in the neighborhood. Um, so obviously this kicked off back in October, and it uh, was kicked off by the Hamas group infiltrating Israel in a terror attack, killing a lot of people, taking a lot of hostages, and then Israel's uh, very assertive counteroffensive on the Gaza Strip, which has kicked off a whole slew of other things in the, uh, the region, uh, some of which we'll be talking about further down this list. But the point is, there is a lot of room for that conflict to continue to balloon. Right now, um, pretty much every other sort of extreme uh, Arabic group in the region has threatened to, you know, escalate things if Israel doesn't settle down with with Gaza. And you may be asking, well, golly, who? Well, you've got Yemen, which we'll talk about in a minute. They've already escalated. You've got Hezbollah, who's had some sort of tit-for-tat across the border skirmishes on Israel's northern border, but they've you know, basically threatened that if things go too much further, they will engage a full-on total war against Israel, and then Israel's going to have a, a two-front war on their hands, uh, which will be no good. Um, then you've got Iran making threats. You've got uh, the Houthis in Yemen making threats. You've got a whole lot of people, <clears throat> and depending upon how this you know, and don't get me wrong, as everyone listening to this knows, I'm, I'm half Palestinian. I do think that the way that things have been for the Palestinians who have been sort of stuck over there has not been great. And I could go into a whole thing about that. But let's be clear, Hamas is a terrorist organization. They need to get wiped out. They, they, they're they just bad guys. You don't get to go do mass murders and terrorist attacks and then get to cloth, clothe yourself in the, the fucking, you know swaddlings of, of innocence. That just doesn't work. You don't get a free pass for that. So uh, they need to get wiped out. The question is, can it be done in a surgical way that doesn't result in lots of uh, innocent bystanders and Gaza Strip getting wiped out as well, and also further escalating this really tense conflict that's happening. And so that is kind of the balancing act there. And of course, the U.S. is is obviously on Israel's side, and it's that whole thing, but there's a lot of calls for de-escalation. The thing that's most worrying about this is that there are so many other dominoes that are just on the precipice of tipping over in this conflict. And it reminds me, the closest historical analogy or analog that I can tie to this would be the spark of World War One. And I'm not giving you guys the full... I want to. I really do want to give you a full World War I history episode because it's context for kings. I can do whatever the fuck I want now. Uh, but I'm not going to do that right now. Maybe later. If you want a World War I uh, episode, let me know. But the start of World War I was some random guy, Archduke Ferdinand, gets shot while he's visiting, I think it was Serbia, if memory serves. 
Um, and he's just shot by this guy. And I can't remember the guy's name even. It was just some random like anarchist who wanted to kill an archduke. And basically, and I'm it's been a while since I've read up on it, so my facts were a little bit hazy. But basically, uh, Archduke Ferdinand gets shot. Uh, I want to say it was the Austrians accused of being some sort of a Serbian group or something like that, or maybe they had ties to Russia. And then uh, the bottom line is they ended up blaming a country uh, and retaliating against them. And there were all these alliances connecting all these other countries. And so when Austria-Hungary went to war, that meant Germany automatically had to go to war. Well, when Germany went to war, that automatically meant that uh, that was going to pull in uh, the Ottoman Empire, and it was going to get these other people. And then when Russia went to war, well, they got brought in because they had an alliance with France, and France had an alliance with Britain, and it just sucked everybody into this conflict because of all these these entangling alliances. And um, that's kind of a weird situation we have going on in, in a similar way, uh, not quite as on paper, but but similar in the Middle East. You've got the U.S. backing Israel no matter what. You've got Iran backing uh, pretty much anybody that's against the U.S. and Israel. In this case, it'd be Hezbollah and, and uh, Hamas and all that. Um, and, of course, they've been backing the, their, the hand behind the Houthis down in Yemen. So you've got Iran there. But then you've got Russia and China who are pretty much committed to trying to back Iran no matter what. Um, and, of course, Britain would back the U.S., which is backing Israel. And you've got, you know, NATO and all those European Western nations that would back the U.S. due to, you know, Article, I think it's five of the NATO Charter. So there's actually a very, I wouldn't say probable, but there's a very real situation you can find yourself in where you kick off this multinational war um, between some pretty big players based on these entangling alliances, not unlike World War One, And I kind of feel like this whole Israel-Hamas thing, which is terrible and horrible and all that, but <clears throat> it's really a fight between, you know, Israel and, and you know, it's, it's, it's a backroom brawl that has the potential to turn into a world war. And I know that's kind of an extreme, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that's what's going to happen. I'm just saying that historically the framework does exist where we could get ourselves to a pretty serious conflict globally if this goes just the right way. So I think it's worth keeping an eye on that because, you know, I mean, nobody would have butterfly-affected uh, Archduke Ferdinand kicking off World War One if some fucking Archduke nobody knew. All of a sudden, millions of people are dead. So all I'm saying is just keep an eye on it. That's what I'm saying. Okay, next up you've got, speaking of the Middle East, Iran, who's fucking with literally everyone. So at this point, Iran has basically, uh, they had a terrorist attack, obviously, just a couple weeks ago, and uh, one of the largest terrorist attacks inside Iran in quite a number of years. And, um, of course, they did what they always do whenever there's some sort of an internal issue. They blame the U.S., obviously, because everything was the U.S.'s fault. They blame Israel, because obviously Israel doesn't have a hand, its hands full with various other issues. And then they proceed to just start bombing people who were probably closer to the people at fault, but it wasn't the U.S. or Israel. So they lobbed some bombs in Iraq. They've lobbed some bombs in um, a couple of other different region, countries in the region. But most interestingly, with their neighbor that they're currently, you know, relatively you know, on good peaceful terms with Pakistan. They launched a, a, a airstrike on a 
supposedly terrorist encampment in Pakistan, which Pakistan responded by launching a counter-air strike, saying that they were hitting terrorists in Iran. Um, Now, so far, the situation seems to have sort of cooled. Nobody has done any cross-retaliation or further. But so far, in something like, in the past week, I want to say it was in three days, Iran had had done airstrikes on three different countries. I mean, it was just wild. Um, Iran frequently does that, though. They'll blame the U.S. and Israel, and then they'll attack whoever it is they actually think is, is responsible, while using the anti-Israel-U.S. rhetoric internally to try and, you know, rile people up or get them on the side of the regime. Um, I think Iran's got a lot of internal strife, and I think we're getting closer. I mean, it was just, what, last year or the year before where they had a high-level imam murdered? Um, You know, that's not the sort of thing that happens every day, especially in in a country that's a religious theocracy. So I, I think there's still a lot of societal unrest that is going to be a factor and how that's going to play out with things. I don't know. Um, but definitely Iran is trying to flex and they're trying to, you know, they're trying to, they're sending a message to their people that they're taking care of business. That's what I, I take that as, uh, whether or not that mollifies the internal dissent factor, uh, with the citizenry of Tehran, I don't know. But to my mind, that's what that's what the regime's trying to accomplish. Uh, next up on the list is, and this one's actually you know basically hot off the presses. North Korea abandons reunification as a national goal. Now this is interesting, and it's got a lot of people freaking out. So to give you a very brief nutshell, when the Korean War ended, and ended a liberal use of the worm uh, word, when the armistice was signed in the fifties which effectively paused the war. The war is still technically ongoing. Um, The deal was that both countries had it in their constitution that the overarching goal was the reunification of the Korean Peninsula under one government, and that effectively the uh, People's Democratic Republic of North Korea and the Republic of Korea were both caretaker governments until a unified Korean government could exist. So that's enshrined even in the North Korean constitution, which I know it's kind of funny to think that such a thing exists, but in fact it does. Um, Well, as of this past week, Kim Jong-un has announced that that's no longer a driving force for the People's Republic of North Korea. Uh, Reunification is no longer in his mind possible. And the only option now is either either the destruction of the People's Republic of North Korea or the subjugation and destruction of the Republic of Korea. Those are the only circumstances that can exist for a um, united Korean front, uh, peninsula, and that reunifying the two countries is no longer an option, uh, not in any traditional or historical sense. This is a striking change for a number of reasons. First off, it's the first time that the North has ever flat out said, we will never reunify. That's no longer an option. The only way we reunify is we conquer you. It's always been sort of this veneer, even if it was bullshit, there's always been this veneer of, uh, it's kind of, you know, we're, we're just waiting for that great day of reunification. Then we'll see, you know, how, 
what do the people of the Korean Peninsula want? Do they want the communist government or do they want the free market government? The people will decide and we'll all bring it together one day, one day down the road. It was all nonsense, but that was sort of the um, the plan. Well, now we're just totally just ditching the veneer, right? We're taking the mask off. We're just saying, listen, it's not going to happen. We're not reunifying. It is what it is. Fuck off. And a lot of people currently are kind of freaking out about this and saying, oh, my God, Kim Jong-un's preparing for an attack. Like the the round two Korean war is about to kick off and it's going to get real nasty. Um, I don't necessarily think that it is. Now, I could be wrong, obviously, but here's my take. There has been enough cross-pollinization between North and South Korea, and not a lot, but enough. People have fled the North. The word has gotten back to the North about the living conditions being significantly better in the South. I mean, the Hermit Kingdom can only close off so much um, of the outside world before people are just going to hear how different and uh, ostensibly better things are. I mean, there's stories of North Korean special forces infiltrating the South, which they had did many times in the 60s, 70s, 80s. Um, and their training was so backwards, so completely not up to snuff, uh, that they were being told, listen, the people in the South are being oppressed by the Americans. They're being oppressed by capitalism. When the, you reveal that you're one of the people's champions of communism, they're going to welcome you with open arms. And spoiler alert, that ain't how it went down. And a lot of these South Korean special forces guys that were captured were astounded by the lives that the people in the South had. And they were shocked that not only were their lives ostensibly looking way, way better and more comfortable and nicer, but nobody there was at all welcoming them with open arms. Um, that was not the vibe at all. And that's what the indoctrination in the North was teaching their people. Now, obviously, I don't know if that's still the case, but it certainly wouldn't surprise me. But my point is, I think that enough information has managed to slip through the cracks um, from South to North that I think Kim Jong-un is not preparing for an invasion, but rather is mentally preparing his people for the fact that there is no reunification. Uh, one, because there never was going to be one, and we're just going to drop the pretense. But also, I think he's realized that their paths have diverged so much, his countries. They have become different people um, in very many and very real ways. I mean, the cultures are different. It's not just an economic system. It's not just a uh, lifestyle. It's everything. Uh, the... And I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I was reading an article a while back, it's probably last year sometime, that the average South Korean, because they just have better access to nourishment and food and all those sort of things, is by and large South Koreans. And these are people from the same peninsula, just a couple mile gap between these two countries that were one place at one point in time, right? But they're taller. They weigh more. They're quite a bit. You know, that's wild to think about, but they've got more access to nutrition. They've got more access to uh, to food and, and, and clean water and all the things. And just as a people, they have changed. They've developed. And Kim Jong-un, I think, knows that there's no way he's ever going to 
get those people to want to sign up for what he's selling, right? And so we're just going to stop this the charade, and we're just going to say, listen, North Korea is what it is. Y'all on this side of the fence are in it for the long haul. There's no merging with the South. They're just the enemy now, and we're not even going to pretend they're our brothers. They're the enemy. If you're on this side of the wall, you're in for the duration. This is what it is. Fucking deal with it. Uh, mind your turnips and get back to work. That's it. That's what I think this is. I don't think it's a prelude to an invasion. That's just, I think, how he's uh, going to tee it up so he doesn't even have to have the the spectacle, the charade for the peasants anymore. Uh, so that's my take on that one. Okay, meanwhile, and honestly, this probably deserves a whole episode in and of itself. In fact, it may well get one. China's rocket forces and military corruption debacle. So I don't know if any of you guys caught this. Uh, it was kind of an attention-grabbing headline, but it, it really didn't get the traction that I thought it deserved. But there was a report that came out a week or two ago about uh, massive corruption in the Chinese military. And I know that's perhaps not shocking to some of you. And obviously my show's banned in China, so it doesn't really matter what I say here. But... The, it was a very staggering situation. They had done an internal investigation. And it, 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 what had sort of predicated all this was that a bunch of high-ranking Chinese military and political officials had vanished in some purges that happened recently. And some intelligence got leaked that the cause of these purges was due to finding out that huge numbers of China's uh, nuclear ground missiles had been defueled, the fuel stolen, and had been uh, probably presumably sold on the black market, and that the fuel tanks had been filled with water, which, of course, probably fucked up a lot of these missiles because you can't have water in the fuel tanks, um, and that also parts had been stolen from the, the doors for the the missile doors for these missile fields, and so a lot of them you know, had either been installed improperly or costs had been cut by the builders to save on money, or they had parts had just been stolen by the workers. But uh, basically, there's a large number of... Not only do they have missiles filled with water instead of fuel, so they couldn't launch if they wanted to, but then you have a ton of these doors that couldn't even open in the event that they had to launch nuclear missiles. And this has started a huge series of purges and anti-corruption sweeps throughout the entirety of the People's Liberation Military. And what makes that really interesting is we've kind of always thought of China as being, you know, the next big pure state thing. I mean, they have an incredibly capable, ostensibly military from everything you see, but that's a huge amount of corruption. That is a systemic level of corruption. That's not something that's one guy fucked up or a handful of guys were skimming a little money in their pocket. This is corruption down to individual soldiers siphoning fuel out of rockets to sell it I mean, on multiple sides. I mean, this is a massive systemic problem that goes beyond just a couple of bad politicians. And it casts the tensions with China and the rest of the world in a very different light. One of the other things that, you know, we're often very worried about is the China-Taiwan sort of South China Sea situation and what that's going to look like and how China's committed to taking it even by uh, taking Taiwan even by force if they have to. Well, all of a sudden, if they're having to totally do massive cleanup in their military and uh, you know spend a huge amount of money on their their rocket forces to try and correct things, that's a big hairy deal. And especially if that news is now out in the wild with other nations 
uh, that's going to change the the strategic calculus. And the question is, what is China going to do to counter the perception that their military is weaker? Are they going to sort of slide back, lick their wounds, fix everything, and then get back back to business as usual in a couple of years? Or are they going to lash out and try and prove that they are still a force to be reckoned with, even with this situation? And I don't know. But I think that's something that we're going to see. We're going to we're going to get the answer to that one way or the other in 2024, I think. So, And I don't think it's necessarily going to be an invasion of Taiwan, but I think China is going to feel like they have to flex their military muscle in order to prove that these corruption issues they're having are not truly impacting their military readiness or capability. Uh, of course, the, the next thing we got on the list here is Houthi forces attack shipping in the Red Sea, uh, which is, of course, tied to the broader... Israeli-Hamas war, so the Houthi rebels uh, have decided that in solidarity, supposedly with the Palestinian uh, Hamas group, uh, they are going to attack any ship that they think might be related to Israel or going to an Israeli port or even just existing on the same planet as Israel. Uh, They're lobbing missiles at them and trying to blow them up. A number of ships have been hit. The international shipping community has called out for something to be done, and the United States and some 20 other countries have started a naval operation throughout the Red Sea, uh, the Bob El-Mandeb Strait, and they're trying to shoot down, or successfully shooting down a huge number of these missiles. Um, Obviously, some are still getting through and hitting civilian cargo vessels, but by and large, a lot of them are getting shot down. And the U.S. is actually decided that they are going to um, start striking out at Houthi emplacements and doing preventative strikes, which uh, we'll see if that uh, settles things down or if that escalates things. But the Houthis have vowed retaliation, which we've yet to see what that exactly looks like. But that's just one more flashpoint that's already starting to bubble over. All right, and... Last but not least on our list, U.S. Republicans solving the debt crisis. So this is as much a bitch about anything as it is a crisis we have to deal with. It is a crisis we're going to have to deal with, at least here in the U.S. Um, and I'm not going to go in too much of a rabbit hole here, or at least I'm not going to try to because we're already, we've had a pretty long run here tonight. Uh, but for those of you that don't know, uh, and I think most of you probably do, we had, of course, the umpteenth debt ceiling crisis a couple months ago, which was nearly a whole chaotic issue because the Republican Party effectively imploded. They uh, basically voted of no confidence their own Speaker of the House, and then they couldn't get anybody elected, and it was this whole debacle with multiple rounds of voting before they finally got just some random fucking guy, Mike Johnson, um, elected Speaker of the House, who is exactly nobody's first pick. Uh, he was exactly nobody's second pick, and not really even clear if it was anybody's third pick. But somehow or the other, he got elected. Um, So you may have noticed that they passed a budget resolution and everything's fine now. And what I want to point out to the listeners of this program, just so we are all clear, they didn't raise the budget ceiling. They didn't cut so much money that they didn't have to worry about it, although that would have been nice. Uh, Instead, let's be very clear what the Republican solution was. And the Republican... The party has the majority in the House right now. 
which means they should have the ability to pass whatever they need to pass to get things done. But obviously, party unity is virtually non-existent, which is not great heading into an election year, but that's a whole other conversation. But the point is, the Republicans' solution to the debt crisis, the party that trumpets itself on fiscal conservatism, their solution? To suspend the debt ceiling until 2025. Yeah. And the party that's going to get up and talk about how we need to be spending less money and all of this, their answer was, let's just do a blank check for the next year and a quarter and uh, solve it then. The reason I have this on the crisis to watch out for list is because basically the Republican solution here was a blank check for government spending for the next year. And we already know exactly when our next debt crisis ceiling is going to hit us. And it's going to be basically happening right at uh, the start of next year. So they've successfully kicked the can down the road, given themselves a blank check to write whatever uh, things they want to spend money for and whatever it is Biden wants to spend money for. Fiscal responsibility is uh, out the window in so much it was ever in the window. And um, yes, here we are. We're um, already only a year out until our next budget crisis. So everyone just buckle up. If our elected leaders were smart, they would actually be working on trying to solve this problem right now. But I can guarantee it's exactly on nobody's agenda. Um, uh, the Democrats are all worried about LGBTQ whatever, and the Republicans are only worried about God, guns, and gays. And um, they'll keep arguing about those respective issues. And about a year from now, we'll be circling the drain of our next government shutdown and budget crisis. So, yay, 2024. Uh, at any rate, all that doom and gloom aside, it is good to be back. It's good to have the show with a new name, and it's going to be... In spite of all this, I suspect probably a fairly exciting year, so hopefully we'll have a lot of fun uh, watching this stuff from the mezzanine. As always, if anybody has anything, by all means, write in. I'll have my uh, email and contact info in the show notes. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's what we got for you. Let me know what you think about this one. And as always, this is Jordan Driscoll reminding you, it's now called Context is for Kings because we all won. See you guys on the next one. Join us again next week on Context is for Kings, an OGGN production. To learn more, go to OGGN.com 